0: Welcome to That Said, I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with Congressman Eric Swarwell and Professor Michael Gerhardt. Congressman Swarwell, now in his fourth term, represents California's 15th Congressional District. He is a member of the House Permanent Subcommittee on Intelligence and on the House Judiciary Committee. He is one of the House managers charged with leading the second impeachment against Donald Trump. Michael Gerhardt serves as the Burton Craig Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina Law School. His teaching and research focuses on constitutional conflicts between presidents and Congress. Michael has testified more than 20 times before Congress and was a witness both in the Clinton and Trump impeachment proceedings. We'll be speaking to Michael later in the spring about his new book, Lincoln's mentors due out on Harper Collins in February 2021. Congressman Swarwell, welcome to that said.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: So Eric, let's, let's start with the beginning. I'd, I'd love the audience to know something about you. Your, your bio to me always has been a, a wonderful story, and, and I think it always helps inform the audience when they know from where our speakers
1: come. Well, I grew up, uh, in Iowa. My dad was a, a police chief and I'm the oldest of four boys. I never really thought about politics uh, as a kid, uh, mostly about sports. Uh, my dad was fired, uh, from his job as police chief when he fought corruption, uh, in Iowa. It was a good old boys small town and he had a mayor who wanted him to, wanted my dad to have cases go away and my dad refused and lost his job. And so my first memory as a kid was that we had to move because my dad was willing to lose his job to do the right thing. And so we moved out west. And so that's my earliest memory, but I never really thought about politics as a kid. Soccer got me to college, uh, went on a soccer scholarship, an injury forced me to think about a career. And that's where uh, you know my father's uh, hopes that I would go into law enforcement uh, really kind of came back. And, and so I went to college and law school and became a prosecutor.
0: Now, you, you became a deputy district attorney in, in the East Bay Area,
1: right? It was the Alameda County District Attorney's Office, and that was my hometown district attorney's office, but also an office uh, that was and is steeped uh, in a history of ethics. Uh, Earl Warren was district attorney of that office, and he really cleaned up a corrupt office uh, because of what he had seen uh, in the Oakland area, especially during Prohibition. And and so he that guided him his whole career all the way to the bench as Chief Justice. And a lot of the criminal justice reforms he put in place on the bench came from what he saw as a young uh, Deputy District Attorney, the job I had, and then later as District Attorney. But it was just a, a kind of, the creed of the office was, we don't seek wins, we seek justice. And that goes all the way back to Earl Warren.
0: Yeah, and I always thought of um, Warren when he was um, district attorney in uh, Alameda County, and Morgenthau, who held the same position in New York, as sort of being the bookends of the country as moral compasses of doing the right thing.
1: That's right. Uh, Two offices that uh, you know really thought that our job was again not to win, but to you know seek the right result, whatever that may be. And as a young prosecutor, that's liberating because. You know, as you know, Michael, there's some prosecutor offices where there's a lot of pressure to just win at all costs, and that was the opposite in our office. Uh, There was a lot of pressure to do the right thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then there is a lot of pressure sometimes on, especially at the state level, to to win because a lot of these guys are politically um, connected or they have to run for their office, and so it's complicated. So... January sixth. I'd like to start with because you're the son of a police chief, with your take on what happened from the standpoint of the police. Where were they? Why weren't they there? Why did it take so long to get reinforcements? What's your what's your sense of that? And you could juxtapose it if you'd like, not that it, it requires it, but you can juxtapose it against their presence during the Black Lives matters. Um, protests, but I'd like to. Uh, I'd like the to night
1: before, you. the night before the electoral college certification, uh, we had a leader a, a Zoom leadership meeting. Uh, so I'm on the leadership team with the speaker. And just as we were logging off, as a son of a cop, uh, I urged my colleagues. I said, "Please, maybe this is just the son of a cop talking." Because this is how my dad would talk to me, but please uh, be safe tonight. I, I recommend that you just order in, don't go out, don't go to a supermarket, don't go to a restaurant. Just stay in that from what I'm seeing of the president's supporters being in town, that they would love nothing more than to target someone they recognize who's out in public. And I thought after I said that, you know, am I being too uh, you know, overly cautious or you know, I didn't want to scare people. Unnecessarily, uh, and then, you know, the next day, believing that we were protected, that I, I said that because I thought we were least protected away from the Capitol and we would be most protected when we were inside the Capitol. And as I watched from the floor on Twitter, the different accounts coming in, I always felt like there was no way the Capitol would be breached. And then you see them climbing the walls and you think, well, there's no way they will actually get in. And then they're pounding and smashing windows. And then you see them on the first floor and, and then pretty soon watching the floor of the House of Representatives, people starting to move uh, on the security side and the Speaker of the House is ushered out. And then pretty soon you're told to reach for your gas mask. And I still thought, well, there's no way they're getting into this room. This has to be the most protected room other than the White House we're you know in the midst of a joint session uh, and you know there's three people in the building in the line of succession and Speaker Pelosi Vice President Pence and uh, Chuck Grassley the president pro town of the Senate but once I started to hear the shouting outside and the smashing of the windows and the pounding on the doors, that's when I realized we, we may have to get out of there or fight our way out and then it really set in when the chaplain of the House, went up to the podium and just started offering a prayer. And, and that's where it was pretty clear that the Capitol had fallen and we were not going to be, you know, protected inside.
0: Yeah, it was 1812, really, the the storming of the Capitol. And the thing that struck me, uh, you know, I spent a decade or more in law enforcement um, not the son of a police officer, but but a prosecutor, um, and I spent this, I did my stint on the hill. You just think of the capital police as being an ever-present presence, uh, in sufficient numbers, always to deal with whatever contingencies are out on the streets. And here we had such advance warning of the likelihood of a, a mass. You know, group of people marching to the Capitol. It just seemed that the numbers were were all off.
1: This was entirely predictable, and because it was predictable, it was entirely avoidable. And you referenced the Black Lives Matter protests, and I was here uh, during the summer. I, I took my wife uh, and our children to, you know, one of the protests on Capitol Hill. We felt completely safe. There was a respect for. The barricade that was around uh, the Capitol. Uh, but what we saw at those protests at the Capitol is not the security posture that was there uh, last week on the 6th. Uh, instead, last week on the 6th, it was a much more reduced security posture. And as you said, the warnings uh, were quite specific and dire as, as far as the intentions of those who were coming to Washington. And now the FBI has stated that a number of people who were on their domestic terrorist watch list uh, heeded to the, they received the president's invitation. They showed up uh, and they were a part of the mob that came into the Capitol.
0: Yeah. I expect there's going to be house oversight hearings on this. The inspector generals have already started to look into it. W- what questions do you want? You're on intelligence. You're on house judiciary. What questions do you want answered Um as we start looking, you know, backwards in time about this.
1: What, what did law enforcement know about the plans and intentions of those coming? Uh, and of those plans and intentions, how many were coming for a rally and, and how many were coming because they intended to try and stop the electoral college counting and bring harm uh, to the vice president, the speaker of the house, members of the, House and the Senate, you know, how much plotting uh, took place? And then there's still the unresolved question of, you know, how much inside help uh, did these terrorists have? Uh, You know, did members of Congress or their staff, uh, you know, give them tours that helped them understand the building? Did they, uh, you know, provide any intelligence about what was going on in the building or where they should go? And it's quite alarming that we've seen some images of Capitol police officers Taking selfies with these individuals, which suggests more spontaneity rather than planning, but also a, permiss- a permissive environment that may have been allowed because of, you know, some sort of affiliation with the cause. So th- there's a lot to investigate. I also want to say we should hold up the heroes because overwhelmingly the Capitol police officers who were outnumbered that day, they were in hand-to-hand combat for hours. They were beaten. They were spit on. They were stampeded. One of them lost their life. Another uh, death by suicide would follow just a few days later. Uh, Those people are heroes, and they saved lives.
0: There's no question. They they did – the ones that that fought and did their duty did so uh, nobly and enably. The ones who seemed less inclined to do their job – I think need to be inquired of because we've been seeing a lot of press about the numbers of people who sympathize with the mobsters being in the police forces, being in uh, the military. And I think we have to figure out are these incubators for uh, white nationalists.
1: And the FBI director, you know, has told Congress in the past that white nationalism is the greatest domestic terrorism. Threat that we face, we saw that with the images of Confederate flags and nooses hanging, uh, you know, around the Capitol. And I think we have to treat this the same way that we responded to international terrorism after September 11th, uh, recognizing that we have to be mindful of civil liberties and, and not to, you know, cast broad, uh, nets, you know, on people just because of the color of their skin. But we we do need to ramp up the intelligence. We need to understand if, you know, just like there were Al-Qaeda training camps, you know, are there, you know, white nationalist groups who have, you know, training camps, radicalization methods, and then, of course, plans and plots, you know, to not only target government officials, but, you know, innocent Americans, especially innocent uh, black and brown Americans.
0: Yeah, yeah. It'll be an interesting lesson to be learned. Hopefully there will be a lesson to be learned. Sometimes I think that in watching this and the lack of intelligence sharing between the agencies uh, or among the agencies, it seems like the lessons from 9-11 were not really baked into the DNA of law enforcement, but.
1: And I don't believe Michael that the, that any person who worked in the Capitol law enforcement or otherwise thought that the Capitol could actually be invaded. They, they, they had planned for a plane flying at the Capitol, September 11, you know, a dirty bomb attack around the Capitol. But the last thing they ever planned for was that people would actually be able to get into the Capitol and that the Capitol would fall.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's turn to impeachment. Um, if, if that's okay. Um, the question that, you hear asked a lot by people who are sympathetic to the impeachment cause and those who are less so is what was the imperative to impeach this week? Why, why did the house need to do that? Knowing that, you know, knowing pretty much full well that there was not likely to be a trial in the Senate before Trump's departure, because McConnell was not going to bring the Senate back. But what, what underlied the, the, the House's uh, imperative to do this?
1: That America is under attack. The, this was not an attack in the past tense uh, that if all the president had done was incite our president, incite our own people to attack our capital, that is certainly impeachable. But the imminency of future attacks that we've been briefed on Uh, by the same folks and and other folks who identify with the president. And so one, just an urgency to protect life. And and you're right, uh, we don't control the timetable that the Senate takes. They're not in session until the 19th. So unless they called a special session, the president would not likely be removed before he left office. But we feel like we had to do our job, at least. We couldn't just not impeach him because we were looking at the Senate calendar. We, knowing our act and scene, wanted to, you know, carry out our duty. And and also, Michael, I hope it's not lost uh, in history that before we impeached him, we'd asked him to resign. And of course, he was not going to do that. But we also had asked the vice president to invoke the 25th Amendment, uh, recognizing that that would be faster than impeachment conviction removal. Uh, But now here we are, uh, we'll be ready to go to trial. uh, The second we're invited, uh, you know, to go to trial. And if it's the case that he's on trial as an ex-president, um, that does that's not an insignificant event without consequences. Of course, there's the consequence of not being able to hold public office again. There's the need to hold him accountable, as well as to deter future presidents from thinking that, well, I have a three-month window in the last three months of my presidency to go on a crime spree because I can just run out the clock and the Senate won't be able to take up the trial stage uh, before I leave office. We don't want to send that message uh, to anyone.
0: Yeah, you can't normalize this behavior by I- ignoring it. One of the things that I found sort of most interesting was the Republicans, you know, call for unity, um, which really is um, code for letting it go and, and and moving on. But as you say, you, you can't easily, let go what happened without putting your mark of uh, disapproval on it through, through impeachment.
1: Right. Uh, That unity, uh, the speaker uh, of the house of, you know, a prayerful person uh, cites, um, I think it's one of the letters from Paul uh, tying together um, justice, and unity, that you you have to also have justice. And um, that's how I see it, is that you need to have accountability and justice for unity and that unity is not unanimity. uh, That it it doesn't mean that you can only have unity if the people responsible for this attack feel like they're a part of uh, whatever happens next, because we should unite against the people responsible. And that's not unanimity, but that could
0: be unity. Yeah. I think it's, um, if you want pray, if you want peace, pray for justice. And, and yeah. if you want, you know, peace, which implies unanimity, that's, the, that's what I was searching for.
1: Yeah. yeah. If you want that, peace, that pray for justice.
0: You pray for justice. And, and in this case, because you're an elected official, you have a, a responsibility beyond prayer. You may pray at home. You may pray on the floor of the Senate. You may pray anywhere you'd like. Um, but you also have a responsibility to act beyond, beyond prayer. And I think that sort of is the imperative as I've heard you articulate it on TV and in other um, uh, formats. Do I have that right? More or less.
1: That, that That's actually, that's absolutely uh, right. I'm, I'm glad you um, reminded us of that. And, and that doesn't mean we can't have uh, unity. Um, you know, we, we can, but we, we also can't forget, who was responsible for this and that we have to come together to make sure it never happens again. Yeah.
0: So let's, if we, if you don't mind, I I know we, I know we can't talk about what happens when it gets to the Senate because the Senate hasn't told us what's going to happen, but can you take us through um, the resolution that um, is the article of impeachment? What is it that it is, what is it that it is asserting? What, what are the elements of the offense, if you will? If, if, the, if an impeachment article is effectively an indictment, what is it that, he, that, that the House is charging the president with?
1: I think that Liz Cheney probably said it best, that the president summoned these individuals to Washington, called upon them to fight and then lit the match that led to the attack, that that's incitement. You know, We are a country that prides itself on free speech, but we also recognize there are limitations and exceptions and that uh, someone who would propagate the big lie as the president did to radicalize his supporters, invite them to Washington for something he promised was going to be wild. When he had those individuals before him told them that they can't show weakness and they needed to fight and that he was going to be with them at the Capitol, that he too would go uh, with them to show a a bond and solidarity. And then the actions, once they reached the Capitol and the chaos they caused and the knowledge he had that this was going on and his refusal to condemn it or send resources that could quell or stop it, that's incitement uh, of the effort to stop us from what we were doing. And, and Michael, it wasn't just any old day where the president had a rally and, and told people to fight and he'd be with them and to go to the Capitol. It was one of the most important days that happens every four years, which is uh, to really begin the process of a peaceful transition of power where we certify the Electoral College votes to set up an event 14 days later where a new president uh, would take the oath of office.
0: Right, and and so I think I think you've described it well. People have said, well, the president has a right of of free speech. Brandenburg versus Ohio authorizes um, there to be uh, fiery rhetoric and even the the calls for fighting and violence, um, but it's not exactly the case that this fits the Brandenburg model in brandenburg Clarence Brandenburg was speaking to 12 hooded Klansmen that's all there were and the TV camera that he he invited and here the president of the United States is in front of the White House speaking to a mob that he invited to come down to be wild uh, for a month's for over a month um, so it, it, talk a little bit about this there because I think the 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 article talks about sort of a course of conduct, the pattern of behavior, uh, and that people shouldn't think that this is really based on a, a one-hour speech.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Michael, uh, that that this wasn't just a slip of the tongue or a spontaneous remark or someone who was just worked up in the moment, uh, that this there's a pattern of conduct very similar to how we alleged a pattern of conduct in the last impeachment that over a month's period of time, he refused to accept the outcome of the election. He said it was rigged. He called upon people to fight. We've got multiple examples of tweets and statements that he made saying that you have to fight and that it would be the end of the Republican party if you did not fight. And he, you know, continued to use that word fight. Uh, and then, um, after that, he, as you said, the, the, as they were assembled there and, and certainly having knowledge of what was going on uh, in the plots and intentions from the Proud Boys and others that there was going to be violence, again, used the same rhetoric. And I just wanna make one distinction from uh, Brandenburg. Uh, this is not a criminal trial. You know, this is, he's a public official where one of the consequences could be that he would never be able to hold office again. So, th- you know, he, he does not enjoy the same protections or standards and I'm not conceding that you know he would have a brandenburg defense in a criminal trial I'm just saying this is this is a different form
0: exactly and and to your to your point of this is a, a very important day and we can't lose sight of the fact that this was on the day that the electoral college votes were to be certified the the movement was stop the steal so if you have a movement called Stop the Steal and the, the, the stealing in their eyes is going on inside the Congress, how do you not, when you say, let's go down there and fight, how do you not anticipate that if they're going to, quote unquote, stop the steal, they're not going to try to, to uh, literally break in? I mean, it seems foreseeable to me.
1: Entirely foreseeable. And you know, I'm also reminded though of what Michael Cohen testified uh, you know, in the past that the president uses coded language, uh, that he, you know, like many mob bosses, he knows how to say just enough so people know uh what he wants them to do. And, and he here he said more than just coded language. You know, he used, as you said, words like fight and he called what was happening to them, you know, a theft and that they could it made them believe Falsely that they uh, themselves could stop it.
0: Yeah, and um, I think the last thing I want to mention, and and before I ask the last last question, is something that you pointed out, which I think is important. You have to show that the the president intended the the outcome of his uh, of of his behavior, and one of the things that I thought was most telling about that uh, intent was what you just described as the delayed. Response And can you tell us what what you know about that that timeline?
1: Well, I mean, what we what we know, having lived it, was that um, for hours there was nothing from the president. Uh, you know, someone who is a keyboard warrior and can send hundreds of tweets in a day, you know, was saying nothing on Twitter to stop the violence until it had reached a point um, of just absolute absolute pandemonium. Um, he finally put out a message but the damage was was already done nor did he during the attack you know go on national tv and then issue a statement on national tv nor did he you know invoke any of the powers to send you know additional forces when we needed it Uh, we have evidence of um speaker of the house and others calling state governors you know around in the surrounding area asking them to send their national guardsmen so uh, again, that that goes to intent that um, someone, if this was a spontaneous statement, and he didn't mean for uh, what had happened to have happened, uh, an innocent person would have immediately, immediately condemned it and immediately sent resources to stop it. Uh, but he didn't do that. And, and and I look at any statement he says now is entirely self-serving, that um, you're just seeing self-serving statements now from somebody who's worried about you know the consequences uh, of what he did.
0: Yeah, and and in fact, I think the 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 most telling statement was at the end of the process when the capital is sort of settled down. He he when he when he tells his uh, supporters to go home, he says that he loves them and he thanks them and that they're all them patriots. They're great patriots. Whereas, of course, again in the compare and contrast. When the Black Lives Matter uh, protesters were protesting, what was his line? When the looting begins, the shooting begins. Yes, you know? right.
1: That's right.
0: You can't not put those things side by side and say, in one case, he had a specific type of intent. In another type, he, in the other case, this one, he had an intent to incite and to let it go. It seems your evidence seems to point in that direction.
1: That's exactly right.
0: So I know we're up against the, the clock. You're a busy man. What what should I have asked you? What what what? <laughs> what? Give me your give me your give me your closing. Give me your argument.
1: We we have for the first time. Uh, well, this this is a unity impeachment. It's the largest bipartisan count for an impeachment being sent over to the Senate. And we're seeing from the jurors over there who are also victims, and this is probably the probably the first time in history where the jurors are also victims, right? Um, don't see that often in a trial. Uh, you're seeing an open-mindedness uh, that we did not see in the last impeachment, and, and that's encouraging. Uh, and we're seeking a conviction. And, and the one mindset that we have is, people say, how do you get 17 Republicans? And, and we don't look at it that way. We look at it as how do you get you know, 67 uh, jurors to convict? We're not looking at them as Republicans or Democrats. They were. We were all attacked. We all ran for our lives. We all work in that building. We all know what it symbolizes. And I hope we will all want to hold the person uh, who incited that attack accountable.
0: Well, Eric Swarwell, thank you very much. Uh, that was a great closing argument, uh, by the way. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm convinced, um, and we look forward to watching you um, try the case.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Michael, and good luck with the podcast. I'm excited for it.
0: Thank you very much. Okay. Now that we've spoken about the imperative of the House to impeach President Trump, we can now turn to the trial itself. To help us understand what will happen in that trial in the Senate, we have Professor Michael Gerhardt. Professor Gerhardt, welcome to That set. Thank you. So as we begin all of our interviews, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your background. How did you come to be where you are? The students listen to this always are, you know, instructed by the paths that people take to where they end up.
2: Well, I, I don't know um, how unusual my path has been, but well, I guess we'll figure it out. Um, I grew up in Mobile, Alabama, and... And uh, I grew up in Mobile, Alabama in the 1960s and 70s, and I was um, Jewish. And so not only being able to witness the civil rights movement unfolding, I also, in some respects, uh, felt felt the anger um, over integration and the opposition to integration. And I came quickly through that experience to believe that the law was something that was important to keep order, bring order to chaos, and also to enforce civil rights. That's what led me eventually to law school. And after law school, I had an interest in um, constitutional law, partly because I also grew up in the time of Watergate. Uh, And Watergate was a very important episode in our history because it showed how Congress has an important constitutional role in checking the president's misconduct. And so I entered academia with an interest in exploring uh, how well or how poorly Congress could check presidential misconduct. I also... um, was interested in uh, other activities um, as well. I felt it wasn't just important to teach, but I also felt it was important to be connected to the real world. This goes all the way back to my beginning. I felt whatever I did had to really be informed by um, experience. And so I not only teach and write about uh, impeachment and related fields, but I also consult with members of Congress on impeachment and judicial appointments and other things.
0: Great. Great. Yeah, in fact, you've, you've testified twice on impeachment proceedings, Trump and uh, Clinton both, and have been counseled to the House or Senate 20-ish times, right?
2: Well, I, I, I've testified o- over 20 times before Congress, yes, and I did it to have the honor of testifying, a couple, if one calls it an honor, of testifying in, in two impeachment proceedings, one against President Clinton and the first one against President Trump. And then I've also worked as special counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Democrats on Supreme Court nominations.
0: Wonderful. All right. So we have an impeachment trial coming up, and it's raising lots of questions. Um, first and foremost, a- among the questions, it seems, is whether it's constitutional to impeach a former office holder. So can you talk a little bit about the substance of the impeachment of a former office holder and whether the question, of is Trump actually a former office holder given that he was impeached in the House while still in office? So when does it become perfected, if you will?
2: Well, it's an important question. Um, and I, I, I will acknowledge at the outset that not all constitutional scholars agree, but I've been on record ever since I started writing about impeachment in the 1980s and 1990s that uh, post-presidential impeachment is legitimate and I think that for several different reasons. One is the Constitution doesn't put any time limit on impeachment, doesn't um, cut off time limit at all. There's nothing in the language that would suggest that. Uh, the language simply says that people may be impeached, uh, convicted for their misdeeds in office. Um, on top of that is the Senate rules. And the Senate rules written, by, origin, written originally by Thomas Jefferson don't disallow post-presidential impeachment um, either. And then also very importantly, uh, the uniform practice of the Senate has been to hold impeachment trials, even for officials who are no longer in office. So I think when we put all those things together, it's pretty clear that the Senate may proceed with an impeachment trial of President Trump for a second time. I think it's an even stronger case for the Senate because of what you said at the end of your question. The House has already impeached um, uh, President Trump while he was in office. And in in any analogous situations we've seen in the past where that's happened, the Senate proceeds with an impeachment trial. So the impeachment trial may focus on those final days of President Trump when he was inciting insurrection, uh, which is plainly an impeachable offense.
0: And so when you say um, the president has been impeached in the House, impeachment sort of analogizing to to an indictment when the indictment is returned by the by the grand jury. It, it is in in effect, it's, it's, it's mature in the case of an impeachment is the impeachment article itself mature while it's still in the possession of the house, or does it only become sort of mature in the grand jury indictment sense when it's delivered to the Senate?
2: I think it's mature at the time it's voted. Um, it's delivery is technically a separate question. And so I think um The president's already been impeached. That's already happened. Um, We actually have had situations in the past when the articles weren't drafted until after the impeachment. Uh, The impeachment is, in a sense, the important event in the House. Its delivery is another event that's important. um, But the the significance of the delivery is once the Senate receives it under its rules, it must automatically begin an impeachment trial. There's no exception it must automatically begin an impeachment trial. And so that's what the House may be trying to control right now when the Senate um, begins that impeachment trial. And the other thing to note about impeachment trials throughout history is it's in the trials that people raise affirmative defenses, like I'm no longer subject to impeachment or anything like that. Um, That's an argument to be made in defense or against an impeachment. It's not an argument to preempt a trial altogether.
0: Right, And, and so those who say well you can't impeach a former president one he's been impeached and two i suppose if the article of impeachment is delivered before noon on the 20th it it further bolsters the notion that this is an impeachment with an impending trial during the office holder's tenure would would, would that would that's you know sort of bolster this notion that there is no uh, impropriety sure. or
2: it could bolster it um, in one sense. I mean, so once the Senate receives those articles, then and receives them before he leaves office, then the Senate is obliged to hold an impeachment trial. The risk for the people prosecuting the impeachment in the in the Senate is that Senator McConnell might quickly dismiss it or get rid of it, and I think that's not what many senators would like to see. So it's a riskier proposition to deliver those articles. Uh, at the outset, it's also risky President Biden uh, because he will have just been sworn in. And I don't think um, he, it's very clear he doesn't want to spend his first few days in office having his agenda overshadowed by what's happening in the Senate impeachment trial. So that's a whole other incentive not to begin the trial until somewhat later.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, we've gotten no conversation at all from uh, Speaker Pelosi about when those artic- when that article will be delivered but let's so let's talk about the trial itself what would it look like um, we've had recent memory of the first Trump impeachment so it's not a, a recessed memory um, although I've tried to recess it as much as I can um, the 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 trial as you said must commence that is the Senate doesn't have the constitutional prerogative to say you know what we can't be bothered and we're not going to have a trial. They have to have some procedure, right? Once, the, once the article is sent over, they have, they have to do something. They can't ignore it. Right.
2: That's right. That's, uh, and that's always been the Senate's position, even beginning with the very first impeachment, which was held by the first Congress. Um, there was a Senator who had been expelled. The house still impeached him. And then the matter came to the Senate and the Senate began an impeachment trial during that trial is when, uh, the person's lawyers mounted a defense uh, and the defense wasn't that you could go after somebody who's left office. The defense was you can't go after a Senator in an impeachment trial. Senators are not impeachable. And most of the Senate voted that way. So there's nothing about that episode. That's a precedent um, against the proposition of proceeding with a trial after somebody's left office.
0: Right. It stands for the proposition that you can be impeached, after you leave office. It's just that they picked the wrong office holder in this case, a non-impeachable officer.
2: The other thing that may be helpful to keep in mind is that in many respects, Congress doesn't really pick the time of impeachment. The president picks that time when he abuses his power. And in this situation, the president abuses power in his final days. In that circumstance, it's fair to say the House didn't have much choice but to defend itself. After all, the House was attacked. Uh, on January 6th. And ultimately, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense if the Senate then says we can't reach uh, this question because Mr. Trump's no longer in office, because that would set a precedent for every president to know that in his final days or weeks in office, he can abuse power as much as he likes because he will escape responsibility.
0: Right, right. And, and many have said that the imperative of the impeachment was you cannot normalize that sort of behavior.
2: Right. That's right. I I mean, think about a precedent that would be set by the House doing nothing. That would be a disastrous precedent to set. After all, there were people who literally attacked the Capitol. People died. People were hunting for the Speaker and other members of Congress, and for that matter, the Vice President as well. And in that circumstance, if the House were to say, look, Um, we can't do anything or we shouldn't do anything um, is the worst precedent. I mean, the worst of all, because it basically means Congress is okay with people attacking it uh, just as long as you attack it when there's not a lot of time left to hold an impeachment.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the article is sent over to the Senate. If the president is in office, the constitution says the, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court shall preside. Who presides if the president is no longer in office? How do, what's the who will we see sitting at that desk in there in their in that sort of quasi-judicial capacity?
2: Well, we have in, in many respects two different moving parts here. One is uh, yes, the president's term has ended, and it wouldn't make much sense for the chief justice to preside. Because it's not just that President Trump is no longer president; Joseph Biden is president. So, the you know it's impossible in this country, of course, to have two people as president at the same time. And given the fact that Joseph Biden is president and he's not the one on trial, that means that uh, President Trump is no longer in that office. And in that situation, the the presiding officer of the Senate tends to be the Vice President of the United States. So Kamala Harris would be. Um, uh would have a chance to be the presiding officer, she or may or may not want to be politically involved with this incident, in which case the Senate pro tem would uh, become the presiding officer, and that's Patrick Leahy.
0: And, and this all presupposes that the majority is held by the Democrats. If it were still held by the Republicans, then it would be Grassley who was the president, pro tem. Right. T- Right. And and the presiding officer would be who? Would it be?
2: Well, the presiding officer would technically be Vice President Pence if he chooses to be that.
0: Even though he's no no longer vice president.
2: Um, Well, if he's no longer vice president and and Republicans still controlled the Senate, in that circumstance, um, it probably would be Chuck Grassley, who would be the presiding official.
0: So the, the trial commences. The, the first words out of the mouth of the House managers is, here, here is our evidence. Trump's lawyers stand up and they say, we object. This body has no jurisdiction over a former president, and the case should be thrown out. How is that adjudicated in, in the Senate
2: well, that'll be, so the objection will be made in the form of a motion, um, much like a motion to dismiss in a, in a regular court of law. Um, on the Senate floor, uh, the Republicans would make a motion, and that motion initially goes to the parliamentarian to decide what's proper under the rules. That parliamentarian will make a decision, and then if it's appealed, it will go to the presiding officer. The presiding officer will then make a decision, and then... If um, her, her decision is challenged, it happens to be uh, Vice President Harris, uh, then that matter would be appealed to the entire Senate, and the entire Senate decides the issue by majority vote.
0: So the the just to make sure um, clear on this, they object. They say there's no jurisdiction. It goes to the parliamentarian. The parliamentarian says this is this is a proper objection. So that's the first decision point. If, if he says it's an improper objection. Then it it dies right there with the parliamentarian.
2: No, any decision by the parliamentarian may be appealed. Okay, so
0: so yay or nay. Yes. Then then it goes to the pro- president pro tem, um, and then if that person says motion to dismiss is is denied, then it goes to to fifty percent. If they if she says motion is granted, does the vote? get to go to the full Senate, can you sort of essentially overrule her granting of the motion?
2: Yes. And we we heard a lot about that during President Trump's first impeachment trial. Any motion of the chair or presiding officer, I should say any decision by the chair or presiding officer, may be appealed to the whole Senate. And 51% decides um, whether or not to affirm uh, the presiding officer or whether to overrule the presiding officer.
0: And in the context of this trial in a 50-50 split Senate um, and the vote goes 50-50, does the vice president then get to cast the vote in the context of an impeachment trial?
2: I, I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think it's permitted under the rules. Um, and um, it would be, um, I, I think it, you Even if she tried, then I think that would probably quickly be challenged, and that, too, would probably end up going before the whole Senate. Uh, The difficulty is in that situation, the the vice president still might have a vested interest or conflict of interest in that circumstance. Um, And the way the Constitution works is the vice president only gets to cast a a tie-breaking vote, usually with respect to legislation, uh, not with respect to... um, a constitutional event like an impeachment trial.
0: Mm-hmm. And so if, if, if this motion to dismiss, I don't mean to belabor this and, and, and non-lawyers out there may think, come on, move on to the next point. If, if there's an appeal of a ruling by the, by the chair and the vote is 50, 50, who wins?
2: Uh, oh, well, if the vote is 50, 50, then it's probably going to be whatever the uh, uh, chair had last ruled.
0: OK, so it does. So whatever the 5050 means, the chair's ruling stands.
2: Right. OK,
0: so this motion dismisses is raised. It's 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 rejected and they allow the House managers to proceed with their case in chief. And what I'd like you to do, if you wouldn't mind, is um, put on a hat as um, counsel to the House managers. And let me ask you if you're counsel to the House managers. Um, and the House is now going to put on its case in chief, what would you advise them? What would you suggest would be the best, most effective way to put on a case in chief uh, based on the article of impeachment?
2: Well, the House managers are led by Jamie Raskin, a congressman from Maryland, who is a former constitutional law professor and is quite knowledgeable about uh, what needs to be done. So I'm not going to... dare to give uh, Congressman Raskin any advice, but, uh, but I think if, it, if I were in that position, um, I, I think the main uh, job of the House managers is to take that article of impeachment and to prove its most critical elements, its most crucial elements. And one is whether the event itself happened something bad happened. Um, second related event is, did the president do that in bad faith? Um, and then um, the final element simply is whether or not that's an impeachable offense. So I would simplify the um, uh, what evidence would need to be put forward. And um, we know that there was an, uh, an event that was bad. Uh, we know that people died. We know that people were threatened and property was destroyed. Uh, then the question becomes, Whether or and how you prove that could be on tape. It could be people who witnessed it other than members of Congress, for example, some of the police or others who saw things members of Congress didn't see. Um, And I think after, um, but at the same time, you're going to try and prove, you'll be trying to prove that President Trump functioned in bad faith. We're not, the impeachment, impeachment process is not set up to remove somebody or discipline somebody for what we call an honest mistake. But if the president were not acting in good faith, um, but in fact had been revving up that crowd for a while, trying to foment violence against Congress, that is something the House managers want to prove. There's plenty of tape to prove that. Uh, And my guess is they'll put together um, tapes and documents that date back to the evening of the uh, presidential election all the way up to January 6th and show how the president throughout all that time was putting forth a big lie that he had lost the election, that he'd won in the landslide, and that he was urging people to uh, fight government uh, and overturn the election. Um, and so I think once um, that evidence is supplied, then you r- wrap it all up by saying it's plainly an impeachable offense. It's, uh, it's hard to imagine a worse one. Um, and at that point, um, the defense would probably take, you know, take the stage.
0: Yeah, and it seems to me that um, proving bad faith, which if it were a criminal trial, another way of saying that would be to prove intent. They had the intent um, yes. to to do this. And it would seem to me that this bad faith collage, you're starting the collage of the big lie from day one. I won in a landslide, it was stolen. and And you're moving forward through... The March, the January 6th March to save America. I think I would add one thing, which I'd like your thoughts on, is that I think that part of my evidence, and maybe in my way of thinking as a former prosecutor, a, a compelling part of the evidence is what Trump didn't do during yes, right. the two hour period uh, that the Capitol was under siege. Remember,
2: right? Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah.
0: He, he, go on you you're going
2: to No I, and I I guess I was uh, subsuming that within the whole but I'm glad we could kind of we're making it explicit. Yes, I think a big part of the uh presidential misconduct here is exactly what you just said, what he didn't do. And that may be uh, proven through witnesses um or documents uh interviews uh that may be available uh from CNN and other sources uh or um and what Trump didn't do does go Further, not just to his bad faith, but in and of of itself, it's a bad action. It's um, because President Trump had roughly, I think, two and a half hours to get the National Guard in there to stop this uh, rampage from happening. And he didn't do that. Reportedly, he was enjoying it um, and couldn't even see what was wrong with it. Um, And I think that uh, that kind of inaction was. Deliberate, and it was harmful, and it helped facilitate and support the riot that was going on.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I, the the one question I would have if I were in this council to the house position is, what do I do with Raffenberger and the calls to Georgia to yes. find him new new votes? I suppose that
2: gets just layered in
0: as yep. a as part of the big lie, as opposed to stand out on as a standalone.
2: Yes, I would think that in order to show it's a big lie, you would then uh, obviously put on some evidence from secretaries of state across the country. There was no fraud, and particularly the secretaries of state that Trump tried to uh, intimidate. And by the way, he tried to intimidate them and coerce them after the election had been certified and the Electoral College had held its vote. The, a critical constitutional event in uh, finalizing the election is when the Electoral College met in mid-December and said Joseph Biden is the president of the United States. Not a single state uh, objected. All states put in their electoral votes. So by the time the matter got to Congress in January, it was already settled, and Congress merely had a uh, a perfunctory role at that point, Um, not to mention the 60 lawsuits that have been uh, dismissed that uh, Trump had filed almost always without any evidence. Um, And it's not likely any defense in uh, the impeachment trial will come up with any evidence either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So turning to Trump's defense, we talked about one, the motion to dismiss filed maybe at the outset and then maybe refiled at the end of the house's um, presentation of its evidence. It's let's assume hypothetically that it's um, denied. So then the president has a, an opportunity to put on an affirmative um, defense. I suppose he can defend himself against the accusations. Um, and we saw that in the um, first trial where they argued that he wasn't stonewalling and that the the phone call uh, uh, to the Ukraine uh, w- was within the bounds of pr- presidential power. In, in this case, we uh, Alan Dershowitz, among others, have written that this case is an imperfect impeachment because the president has a First Amendment protected right to speak um, and even give a fiery political speech that uses the words fight and violence or other sort of fighting words. As long as he's not inciting the crowd to immediate um, violence, kill that man, Um then it's a First Amendment protected speech, as unlikable as it may be, and therefore it's in, inappropriate to impeach a president for a First Amendment speech protected um, speech. Tell me what you think about it.
2: Well, that is likely to be a, an argument that's put forward. I think it's a lousy argument, and I'll tell you why. Um, to begin with, it's, the article of impeachment is not predicated on the violation of a particular criminal statute. So simply invoking uh, the language of a criminal statute or the First Amendment law that might apply to a criminal statute misses the point entirely. Um, The second thing is um, that government employees, and I think that would include the president of the United States, don't have complete freedom to say whatever they want anytime they feel like saying it. Um, Government employees are fired. President Trump has fired government employees for their speech. So it is not unusual for that speech to be um, something that uh, the the, the person who spoke it is held responsible or accountable. Last but not least, uh, I think that even if he had a right or somehow the freedom to say all that, it doesn't um, in any way take him off the hook. For example, conspiracies use words, and we oftentimes go after conspiracies and. Uh, chrono proceedings. Um, somebody who uh, expressed a string of racial epithets might be able to claim they're protected, but that goes to undermining the dignity of the office. So speech and action can undermine the dignity of the office and it's perfectly legitimate within the context of an impeachment trial to take all that into account.
0: Right. So in some sense, we're back to impeachment one, which is this is an abuse of the powers of of his office to behave that's this very, way, that's right. right. Ir, irrespective of whether or not, in a technical Brandenburg versus Ohio criminal law analysis, there may be greater protections uh, uh, to the to the speaker.
2: That's right, um, and in fact, if we look at the history of impeachment more generally, the rules of evidence don't apply um, in impeachment trials, and obviously senators are not jurors either; they're not. Uh, One reason why um, one might even think about trying to mount a First Amendment defense is because of the lack of sophistication if you just had a jury of somebody's peers. Senators were specifically chosen because they were supposed to be sophisticated. They can understand not just the arguments about the First Amendment, but one of the critical things about all expression and whether or not it's protected from any kind of uh, legal or legislative reaction is the context of that speech. And the context of that speech for the president was very much uh, incendiary. And um, just like Mark Antony's famous speech in Julius Caesar, beautiful, elegant, but it incites people to go after other people. And this was what was done as well on January
0: 6th. Right. And in fact, I think it it fits in with your advice to the House um, that the case should be presented as a months long Series of actions. One small part of it, perhaps, was the march, was the January sixth march against America. Maybe that's the final straw. But you don't isolate that speech right. out of the context of a months long effort to undermine the.
2: You can't. I mean, after all, on January sixth, those people d- didn't just wander off the street into a rally for President Trump. It had been organized. It had been orchestrated. Um, and the funding of it, by the way, may itself need to be figured out because there, there might be uh, inappropriate things that went on with the funding. But people came to that rally because they've been called to that rally. And when they came to that rally, many of them came with guns and nooses and the, the determination to fight and harm people because they believe that's what President Trump wanted. And even some said, that's what Ted Cruz wanted.
0: Yeah, in fact, the language of the president was, "Come on, January sixth, it's going to be wild." Yes.
2: That, that the con-
0: that that in sense proves the context. No. Uh, I want to I want to pivot to and 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 uh, we know from the past um, impeachment, sixty seven votes are required to convict um, uh, and remove. Yes. And um, but one thing that I forgot to ask you in the very beginning when I asked you, what do you make of the? Um, legality, the constitutionality of um, bringing to to trial impeaching a former officeholder. One thing that I didn't ask you, which maybe we can wrap up this part with, is there's a second um, ancillary um, aspect of what the Senate does in in the context of impeachment, which is impeach, remove, disqualify. So can you talk a little bit about the disqualification clause of of their, their constitutional powers and why that Further, perhaps, gives authority to the notion that you can um, impeach and try a former sure. official?
2: Um, the Constitution sets out only two sanctions uh, in an impeachment trial, only two. And they did that deliberately to d- differentiate American impeachment, our federal impeachment, from the British practice in which Parliament could impose any punishment, including death. So the only two punishments recognized in the United States Constitution, if somebody's convicted, are removal from office and or disqualification. Uh, Disqualification means being disqualified from ever serving again in federal office. The fact that disqualification is one of those sanctions does raise the possibility that it's a uniquely uh, useful sanction for somebody who might be out of office, but is later discovered to have committed while in office some horrible things, some impeachable things. So Congress could then um, pursue an impeachment because they they concluded not just we should convict this person for the bad acts, but we need to disqualify this person from ever serving again because of the bad acts and the potential harm, maybe the real harm, this person poses for the future of the republic.
0: Yeah, and in fact, the, 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 the hypothetical, the law school hypothetical in some sense is a president impeached, tried, about to be, convicted resigns says yeah. right, that's it. I resign you can't in- convict me right. he leaves he leaves the presidency only to announce the next day his run for the presidency again they can't the theory would be you can't divest the Senate um, from its ability to disqualify you from that future run by by artifice.
2: I, I agree with that. I think that hypothetical was raised by my friend Akhil Mart Yale recently, and I think um, it's a good one uh, because that's essentially what uh, the president and his defenders will be arguing: um, that once a president leaves office, he is um, he's free of ever having to be subject to impeachment again, and that does raise the possibility that not only can a president go wild, to use the president's word, go wild in the last few weeks of a presidency to abuse power where however and whenever he likes, but then he can resign just before the end of his presidency and escape any kind of constitutional responsibility. The other thing to keep in mind here is the sanctions in impeachment are unique. They can't be imposed through any other means. You can't remove a president from in a lawsuit. You can't um, disqualify a president from in any kind of prosecution. The only way you can remove and disqualify is through an impeachment. So it's a the uniqueness of the remedy seems to require, um, maybe even demands, that a president who tries to escape accountability near the end of his term is not able to do that. Yeah, I
0: think I think that's right. So in the time we have remaining, and because the presidency of Donald Trump is coming to an end and the um, ether is filled with conversation of pardon, I'd like to ask you two questions. Sort of pardon topics about two pardon topics. The first one is this notion of the preemptive pardon we, we, it It gained fame, if you will when when it gained fame when when Ford preemptively pardoned Nixon. You are pardoned for any and all criminal behavior from period X to period y, or maybe similarly. I'm not sure, but maybe Jimmy Carter, pardon of the draft, um, Dodgers. Um, But talk, if you will, about the preemptive pardon, because people talk about it as if because Ford did it, it, it's been sanctioned as as appropriate and, 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 and within the president's lawful pardon powers. I'm not so sure, but tell me what you think.
2: Well, I, I think you're probably wise not to be so sure. I, I think that we um, we looked at different things to kind of uh, to help illuminate the meaning of the Constitution. Precedents, one, and so we do have this one precedent from President Ford, a widely respected leader, uh, a man of integrity. This was one precedent that he established uh, by giving a prospective pardon to Nixon based on the events re- related to Watergate and the impeachment. Um, but uh, we've not had that kind of uh, pardon. It's not common otherwise. Um, and I th- even as back as far as the Civil War, the Supreme Court has basically said in understanding the scope of the pardon power that it applies to somebody who's already been convicted uh, or punished for some criminal wrongdoing. Um, so, uh, it basically, pardons work retrospectively. They don't work prospectively. Um, and that's all suggests that a prospective precedent, uh, excuse, excuse me, a, a pardon that's prospective, isn't going to have the force of law. It will be immediately chan- challenged in court. And I think their odds are pretty good that a court might say that th- this pardon doesn't have legal weight.
0: Right. So the way it would play out, hypothetically, is the president says... On January 19, I pardon my children for any and all criminal behavior that they may have engaged in during the period of my presidency or or over the course of their entire life. And um, thank you very much. Um, And and he rides off into the into the sunset federal federal prosecutor in the United States looks at one of those children and says, this child has engaged in this criminal act, and I intend to indict them. Yes, and and and, and does okay. indicts okay. them. That then prospectively pardoned individual picks up this piece of paper and says, "Not so fast. I have this pardon from my father, father-in-law, um, who says I have a get-out-of-jail-free card." Effectively, mm-hmm. the prosecutor says. I don't believe that that has any legal weight and then they go to court and the court resolves the issue. Is that how it plays out?
2: I think that's what, uh, the, that's the likeliest scenario. So yes, the, the criminal defendants, whoever they may be, will raise this piece of paper, the pardon and say, you you can't prosecute me for any crime. Um, read the pardon. Uh, I think the prosecutor will in, in, uh, will likely say that pardon is, ineffective. It's illegal. It's unconstitutional. Um, And a judge will rule in all likelihood one way or another, and it will probably get litigated all the way up to the Supreme court.
0: Yeah. And then they'll make a decision for the first time as to whether or not a pardon is as it was intended in its um, creation to deal with past criminal acts of individuals, who um, essentially were convicted and and now are worthy of some leniency.
2: Yeah, and I might just add to that, I mean, one of the real central themes of the United States Constitution is that no one is above the law. And and a prospective pardon would have the effect of making somebody above the law ahead of time. Um, and, And so they could, and it seems to make no sense. It seems to cut at the very heart of what the Constitution was set up to do.
0: Right. And, and so the last question uh, before I let you go is, it, it, does the same analysis apply to self-pardons?
2: I, I believe so. Again, uh, scholars are not uniform on this. Um, I happen to belong to the camp that believes that a self-pardon would be unconstitutional. And there are a couple of different things we can look at to support that conclusion. One is the language of the clause itself president is not given the power to pardon. He's given the power to grant a pardon. And the words to grant mean to give somebody else something. And that's what's written into the Constitution. And so to read that language, to give meaning to every word in the Constitution um, would not lead one to think that a president could grant himself anything, but he might be able to grant the pardon or reprieve to somebody else. The second reason I think that a self pardon makes no sense is to go back to the point about uh, the fundamental principle of American law. First, that nobody may be a judge in their own case, but also they may not place themselves above the law. A president who pardons himself has literally placed himself above the law. And that is contrary to everything that led to the uh, revolution against the British, to the adoption of the constitution and to the rule of law that we have respected ever since.
0: Professor Gerhardt, my friend Michael Gerhardt, thank you so much. This has been um, educational. Uh, tell me when your, when your constitutional 101 class um, <laughs> begins and whether I can sign up for it, because I've got a lot to remember.
2: And by the way, you can join any time. We're doing it now. <laughs> Wonderful.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on That Said. Thanks. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at That said at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.